are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Nice to have you along today. So it's Veterans Day weekend, and for many of us, we have enjoyed or will enjoy a day off. But for so many veterans, throughout the weekend, they will be working. You know, when I think about Veterans Day, I realize that uh, so many people who are veterans feel invisible, have just kind of faded into the background. We may see them at the airport or at the parade and say, thank you for your service. But do we really see them? And do we really see their work and what they do and what not only what they did in the service, but what they do afterwards? I, I was thinking about that. And there's someone that I see every day, one of my favorite veterans. And so on this weekend, uh, I want to introduce you to my friend and my colleague. My name is Steve Carton. I'm the account manager for security here at Georgia Public Broadcasting. I served in the United States Coast Guard. My first six years, I did marine law enforcement and Haitian and Cuban uh, immigrant interdiction. If it hadn't been for the Coast Guard, I probably would never have traveled as much as I did. Mm. I mean, um, I've probably been to every continent except Africa. And when you're in the military, you kind of get accustomed to working holidays, mm-hmm. weekends, you know, mm-hmm. long hours. You, you know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just an ordinary day. When people say thank you for your service, does that matter to you? Do you, yeah. do you like to hear that? Yeah, I, I love to hear that. You do? I love it. That, that means that people just, they realize that you, you served your country. And, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it means a lot. It does mean a lot. Oh. I, I, I love to hear that. That was Steve Carton of Georgia Public Broadcasting, who continues to serve us wonderfully. And we are so grateful, not only for his service in the military, but also his service with Georgia Public Broadcasting. He has kept us safe. He was here all through the pandemic. And we are so grateful for him. And I hope that you find a veteran in your life to just spend some time with. To all the veterans, I say thank you for your service. You know, one way to say thank you to our veterans is to perhaps cook them a good meal, cook someone a good meal, or maybe take them to a restaurant or maybe even do some takeout. But if you do takeout in Atlanta, beware. There is a hot conversation going on on social media. It's even made the national news about the food scene in Atlanta. It all started with Keith Lee. Do you know who he is? He is a former MMA fighter turned food critic. From the passenger seat of his car, wherever he is, he gets this to-go order and he sits in the car, opens it up, and then he eats it from whatever restaurant he's decided to visit. Joining me to talk more about this now is King Williams, host of the podcast, The Breakdown with King Williams. Hey, King. Hey, thank you, Leah, for having me today. Sure. So you have been talking about this issue of the Atlanta restaurant scene uh, for a while. So um, I'll give the setup. So Keith Lee was in Atlanta recently. Normally he covers um, food restaurants in like Vegas or whatever, but he he's, you know, this, this TikToker, he was in Atlanta recently for a music festival, took his family all over town to eat, and he ran into an issue that so many people run into uh, when they go to 
um, Black-owned restaurants, these grass-walled restaurants, so to speak. Um, Tell us more about your take on all of this and what is a grass-walled restaurant? Oh, my gosh. You know, this is amazing that Atlanta really does influence everything. And sometimes it can influence it in the most negative fashion. And this week is one of those cases. Um, to to answer that, like, so Keith Lee is TikTok's biggest food reviewer, food influencer by bar none on the entire platform. We're talking a billion user platform. And Keith Lee is number one, without a doubt. Um, the thing is, the Grasswall restaurants has really come as, in many ways, it's a reference to restaurants that happened really at the turn of the early 2010s, when you see restaurants in LA would use actually grass walls and neon lights and restaurants to kind of distinguish themselves from their older counterparts. These were usually restaurants that were just up and coming. And so that trend is kind of taken all over. And so Atlanta, while we met six, we may set trends culturally. We don't necessarily always set the trends on food. And so over the last six or seven years, a lot of restaurants in Atlanta, especially new restaurants, people who are restaurateurs not from the space or people who've been to LA has started adapting those things. And so now it's been kind of used as a pejorative of grassroots, uh, grass walled restaurants. And you kind of know what the experience you're going to get from that one. Ah, yeah. So you're going to get like, um, I don't know if hipster is the right word, but it's kind of, you know, no. no, that's not the right word. What's the right word? <laughs> no, but you know, though, it like, so that was the other thing. So like a lot of West Coast hipsters and a lot of like East Coast, like, so that's the thing. Hipsters, a lot of ways, just kind of show what the future trends are going to be in food. And so maybe 15 years ago, that would have been like the hipster crowd, yeah. even maybe 10 years ago. But now it's definitely like the, your amateur influencer, your C-list, D-list influencer in your city is now at a grass wall restaurant. Ah, okay. I've had an experience or two with a grass-walled restaurant in Atlanta. I'm sure you have where you go in and, you know, the service is just not quite right. Tell me about some of your experiences. Uh, You know what? The fact that you and me both all have, Keith Lee, all have terrible grass-walled restaurants experiences are just indicative of what what it is. For me, a lot of my my worst grass wall experience, I will say, I'm not going to say the name of the place. It just comes with me. I have a shellfish allergy as well. And so you tell the restaurant in particular, hey, you know, I can't eat uh, shrimp. Could you know, could you give me something else? I'm ordering a pasta dish, right? Pretty straightforward. Pasta, none crazy. And then the response I got was, well, you know, we cook everything in the same pot. We put everything in the same thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can't eat anything here. Then you can't get, you know, the check comp. And, And so for me, I've had those kind of experiences with grass wall restaurants or just, you know, I'm thinking ordering a burger and then the burger is $18, but the fries are also $6. And then like the Coke on that top of that is $3 and I'm almost at $30 for a burger, fries and Coke. And so I, I had to move away from them just because, you know, I don't want people twerking next to my burgers and fries. I would just <laughs> like my $30 burgers and fries to be twerk free. But, you know, everyone has their own experience. That's it right there. That is it right there. I was also at a grass wall restaurant, literally a grass wall with the lights, with the name of the restaurant. And you could pose for pictures. The drinks are, you know, on point and those are great. But you're right. You're, you're like, OK, God forbid you have an allergy. They, they didn't hear you over the the music that's playing and the hookah blowing. They just didn't even hear you. And, you know, maybe the server will come back before the end of the night and clear a dish or offer you the check. So, yeah. Maybe. 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 And, you know, this was something that was just quietly talked about. We would all talk about it among ourselves. But then enter Keith Lee, who comes to town and puts it on his TikTok, and it just goes viral and then everybody comes forward what did you think about cardi b coming forward to say something 
Uh, Cardi B is the president of the United States. And so when she says <laughs> something, then therefore it is is the case. Um, in the case of what she said, I knew the moment that Cardi B went live and I heard somebody say Cardi B in Atlanta, I knew exactly what the comment was going to be. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, I think it's important as we're talking about this, the Keith Lees and the Cardi B's of the world, they're heard by tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. And I just knew it was going to go bad. The moment I said Cardi B just go live, I was like, oh God, it's going to happen. Because uh, if you weren't on Black Twitter or Black TikTok, it's kind of hard not to. But that was the number one topic for like four days in a row. And I just knew it was coming. I was like, oh God, this is coming. This is coming. And then it happened. And then like the tsunami of people who had secondary conversations about that just kind of blew me away. Yeah, yeah. You cover this story uh, more extensively on your podcast and 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 um but in your uh, Twitter thread that you put together, you make sure to note that there's a difference between the black entrepreneur community and other establishments. Uh explain that. Yeah, so unfortunately, like when people right now your listeners are going to be they're going to search on social and they're going to read the website and see what that is. You're going to hear a lot of people criticizing Atlanta restaurants. And I think this weekend is indicative of the two Atlantas that we live in. Black Atlanta has a very different experience with things. And so this is Black Millennial, Black Gen Z, a little bit of Black Gen Xer talking about the Grasswall restaurants and the, the celebrity adjacent restaurants, right? So when they say Atlanta restaurants, what they're actually referring to is that. Um, and I've seen this now with a couple people who've also reached out to me who weren't Black who were saying, I, I thought Atlanta restaurants are good. The Michelin Guide is here. And they didn't know anything about these restaurants that, that Keith Lee had visited. Mm-hmm. And so this type of bifurcation of two different worlds that we're seeing played on social is a real thing. But it's this criticism of a, a decline in both service and a decline in quality and food, but also like the increase in price and the decrease in uh, expectation from a lot of the restaurateurs that people have been complaining about amongst Black circles online for, since at least 2018, 2019, and it got bigger during the pandemic. And over the last year in particular, Atlanta has just taken a beating because these grasswall restaurants have become so far the lexicon of Black Twitter that every restaurant in Atlanta, when they say Atlanta restaurants, they automatically refer into these Black restaurants. And I think a lot of restaurants really got looped in. And this is an example of people who came down here in Atlanta, in the case of Milk and Honey, uh, one of the places that Keith Lee had a beef with. This is a prime example of that kind of phenomenon of a a celebrity-driven restaurant, a a grass wall driven restaurant really being lumped in with a lot of bad behavior and kind of ruining that entire corridor of restaurants who aren't necessarily in that right in college park. So a lot of those restaurants in college park right now have been doing damage control on their social feeds and they had nothing to do with milk and honey just because they're associated on that same block with milk and honey. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the difference between a restaurant tour and somebody who's just looking for a quick buck to kind of make something in, in the food business. Mm. You know, I've been wondering are these restaurants now going to hear the ones that have had problems? Are they now going to actually listen to the concerns of the people that visit and make changes? Do you think you're shaking your head? No, Mm-mm. absolutely not. Um, no, Mm-mm. I think. OK, I think because Milk and Honey just got bullied into an a real apology today. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily going to change the service. And I think for the key reasons, they have their core customer base already. Their core customer wants brass on walls, they want a DJ, they want people having that kind of rah-rah experience. So they don't really need to change. What they do need to change is their social media response. And I think a couple of those restaurants will do that. But they have a base of people who want that experience. And I don't think it's going to change. I do think for the aspiring milk and honeys of the world, maybe this is a wake-up call for them because people are looking for a certain expectation. And I don't think they're asking for something that's unreasonable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
Is Keith Lee, you think, the Oprah of these kind of restaurants or the black uh, owned business, restaurant business world, do you think? I mean, he normally covers restaurants in Vegas, as I was telling you. Um, I, I was looking at his TikTok and from the restaurants that he was covering in Vegas and he's been to Chicago and he's been to L.A. and whatnot, they were getting like a million hits. He got to Atlanta and all of a sudden it's like nine million people viewed um, one of the restaurants, Juicy Jerk Restaurant. That review got over six million views. Atlanta Breakfast Club got over nine million. Uh, is, does he have like an Oprah effect, you think? Yeah, he is. And I think he's Oprah for Gen Zers mm-hmm. on the on the planet. And the, the thing that makes Keith Lee very different is that unlike Oprah, there are no like paid sponsors. So you can't buy your way into Keith's feed. You can't buy your way into getting him to, to respond. He only goes for two reasons, one of which you directly message him and then he replies to the message on whether or not he's going to come. And the second way, which is kind of how we end up with this kerfuffle in Atlanta, which is if he just has a volume of people saying, go visit this restaurant. So in the case of Milk and Honey, Atlanta Breakfast Club. I would do the same thing if I had 10,000 people tell me go to Atlantic Breakfast Club, I would probably go to the Atlantic Breakfast Club, too, because that's a, a surge of people. And to your earlier point about the the viewership on TikTok, I think for some of your listeners should be uh, kind of surprised, which is like uh, two weeks ago, we had a viral clip that went across multiple social media streams and actually traditional media, which was a, a young woman who went to Fontaine's Oyster House who ate 48 oysters on her first date. Uh, and that in particular got around 6 million views on TikTok, but also had a reverberation of probably like five times as much across the social media internet. The Keith Lee, the lowest Keith Lee video right now of him being in Atlanta, and I think it just came out this morning, is at about 2 million already on TikTok. But he's had videos that's had 20, 25 million. I think one of his videos in Atlanta right now is at 20 million already after three days. And a lot of those videos are now getting three, four, five X across the social feed, which means that 20 million video on TikTok, the one that we're talking about from Milk and Honey, has had a social graph of about 100 million people engaged with that. And so to your point about the Oprah effect, when you can have that many impressions, you can lead to real traffic. And I I joked around on Twitter saying that Keith Lee is the Chamber of Commerce for Atlanta right now. And he kind of is because eight different restaurants got exposure to tens of millions of people, Gen Zers who don't know a thing about Atlanta, who are just coming up to their own purchasing power. And so that is huge. And so the fact that a, a positive or a neutral review from Keith Lee can get people to go visit a restaurant is saying a lot. And it says where we are in kind of the, the space of business today. Mm-hmm. All right. King Williams, you are the host of the podcast, The Breakdown with King Williams. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us. Thank you for having me. If you ask a kid what they want to do when they grow up, so many will tell you, I want to play ball. They want to be like their favorite sports star. But just a few kids will actually make it to pro ball. But a former pro baller says she's got a great way for kids to go pro. Stay tuned for that on Georgia and Play. This is Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming here now with Nisha Butler. She is CEO and founder of Steam Champs. And she is also a former WNBA ball player. She played for the New York Liberty. And she uh, also is an engineer. And we are talking with her now. Hi, Nisha. Hi. Hi. Hey, guys. How are you? Good, good, good. So you were playing ball for Georgia Tech? Yes, yes. Georgia Tech is where um, I came from New York City. Played my year there. Rookie of the Year, All-American. Um before going on to play in Europe, 
um, briefly um, and got signed to delivery briefly. And then uh, my niece like, you need to retire. But lucky I had, uh, you know, my engineering degree, my degree from Georgia Tech. And voila, we have this. <laughs> All right. What is STEAM Chance? So STEAM stands, uh, STEAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering. Um, I like the art aspect of it um, and uh, math. And champs, because we're seeing champions, I'm building champions. Um, I think that sports has given me a great, um, you know, use for my life as a person, as a human. Um, and I think that in addition to giving kids the foundational knowledge that they need to go pro in a STEM career, we're also uh, building champions in like life, <laughs> which is important nowadays. So Yeah. So when you were at Georgia Tech, did you ever think that you would go pro playing basketball? Yeah, that was pretty good. So <laughs> that was always like the uh, the goal. Um, however, in my household, which I'm really glad and I'm I'm passionate about um, this narrative that you know I was all American, I was all city, I led the league and um, actually I led the ACC in scoring, uh, as ACC, and you know my professional basketball career. Um, wasn't like, you know, 25, you know, 10 championships, you know, mm -hmm. WB, all, nothing like that. Um, and I think that it's, a, it's something to be said that just like the percentage of people, um, you know, that it happens. And I think women generally do a better job at this, but, you know, I think that like, uh, a lot of men, uh, especially need to understand that it's less than 1% that actually goes pro. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we as a community, we really have to <laughs> change this um, yes. because I, I'm, I'm confident that my kids in STEM, you know, will have 98% chance, 95% chance of going pro in a career that they feel. Um, and we need to start doing that. Yeah, and that's what STEAM Champs is really about i've heard you talk about uh, steam champs before um and about what the goal is which is you can go pro if you actually learn how to do this you're actually an engineer as well uh that's what yes from georgia tech what exactly do you do as an engineer well i'm a software engineer so there's a lot of different engineers there's electrical industrial mechanical aeronautical i mean there's a lot of different types of engineers um however uh, software is computer science, full stack developer. Um, you know, I taught CS actually in uh, a few Atlanta schools um, with Microsoft Teals program. And I just found that representation really, really mattered. Um, and living, graduating from Georgia Tech is a vacuum because obviously I have black friends and I was like, oh, you know, a lot of black engineers are around. Actually, that is not true. <laughs> like it's a very small percent. Um, and again, as we talked, engineering is very sort of diverse field. Um, and it's just, it, we need to do better, especially. So it's funny. So I could say out my basketball team at Georgia Tech at a division one school, maybe a handful, a small handful of us in total um, have gone pro in some capacity, right? However, all of my teammates and most of my friends are engineers in life, you know, oh. living a, a fine life and making way more money <laughs> than it would be. And, I, and it hit me like, why is nobody making this connection with, you know, generational poverty and like one engineering job? Um, and it's something that people can do. You, you're, you perfect what you practice. 
you know, I've heard you also um, talk about the fact that there are a lot of kids that are doing video games, especially now. I mean, there are whole communities where you have these yeah. nerdy kids that are into video games. And yeah. you're saying that that actually is valuable and not to, not, you know, not to push that aside when they're doing that, to pay attention to it. Of course. Why? Instead of being consumers of technology, you can be creatives mm-hmm. of technology. And I think as a as a human race, the more people from diverse backgrounds that can add, you know, their spice, their zest, what makes sense perfect to games would make it better for all of us. Um, so I just think that, yeah, but the kids in the background right now are listening to Taylor Swift and building their own video games. And we have our, our young kid as young as seven, you know what I mean, uh, in here doing that. So, um, yeah, I just think we need to, it's possible, right, to actually create, build, um, and add to technology instead of just always being simply consumers. Yeah, yeah, simply consumers. That is so important, I think. And that you are actually teaching uh, kids as well to, I thought I saw something about building robots, you know, yeah. and this AI tech and all of this. Yeah, yeah. No, we, so the mission and the passion behind us is that we're um, exposing, exposing kids to the various um, wonders of technology that leads into a career, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I think that kids, you know, you can be a software engineer, however, you can be a robotics, you can be a, d- a data um, analyst. There, there's so many different aspects of being tech enabled mm-hmm. that I think um, the differentiation between my center and others is that we're not just coding, we're not just robotics, you know, obviously we're not just STEM, we have arts in there as well. So um, the idea is that I, I think that as an engineer and being around a lot of engineers, I really wanted to put art in that because I think sometimes uh, engineers could be like linear right. people. Um, so I think we need that imaginative, that creation, that you know, space to be creative. Um, however, I think that it's it's kind of like a mix, uh, a melting pot of things. And you get kids early; um, they don't really see a limit early. You know, yes. like we can you know, encourage them and support them early. And then by the time they get older, they'll know, but at least they were exposed to it. They know that where they want to focus on. Yeah. Are you still um, a sideline reporter for the Atlanta Hawks? Do you still do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not do that. Uh, this is way more money doing this. No, let me stop. Um, no, I, I think that sports, I love sports. And that I love, you know, media. I, that's just something that I love. And that's, mainly why I add the arts in it as well. Um, However, I think when we're talking about, you know, the wealth disparity in this country um, and there's specific areas of careers that is like a minimum guarantees certain things, I think we got to take a look at that. You know what I mean? Like I'm a grown woman, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I have needs, I have wants, and I have dreams and aspirations. And I'm so grateful that I have parents in my household that when I was this young, like, you know, focus on basketball. They're like, this is great. This is good for a young girl, confidence, you know, focus, leadership. Um, however, it was never in my plans for my parents to um, make a true living in the WNBA. In fact, I mean, up until recently, you know, the average salary, I think was like $28,000 or something like this until recently, which thank God they changed and the girls deserve more money and pay equity and blah, 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 blah. However, um, during that same route of my life, you know, you turn around, you know, starting salaries as an engineer, it's any of these fang companies, it's like 130. Oh wow. And your knees don't hurt, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean injuries I've forgotten. Right. So, you know, um, 
that's something, you know, your brain, no one can take away that curiosity and it's never too late to learn. And it's, you know, whereas I was on the top of my game, however, I had several injuries, ACL, MCL tear, torn meniscus, torn quads, three broken noses, uh, two broken ankles. Like I've, I've, you know, shed tears um, for basketball and I won't change it. Like it's given me a lot and I love it. However, um, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you work, but people have to understand to be great in a sport is so much discipline and hard work and a lot of luck, Right, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of luck. So um, I just, you know, I think that I'm in a position because I was so good um, to talk to these kids. Like I get it. You know, you, you want to be LeBron, you want to be Mike. LeBron has been in the league. I don't know, 15, 20 years now, he's not giving up that job, right? <laughs> there are jobs openly, readily available that you can do and play recreational basketball. I just, I just think that, I just, I, I thank you guys for interviewing me and giving me a platform to speak, but I feel like I'm doing, we are doing an injustice to kids to giving them this platform and this, and this way of life that has a, a, a 99% failure rate. Right. Like, what are we doing? Right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean, and no one, no one's considering this. Like I'm just, I, and I ask these kids all the time, what do you want to be? I want to be a basketball player and I'm not going to kill anybody's dreams. However, I feel like we have to, you know, I wanted to eat Oreos for dinner, you know, at nine years old. Right. <laughs> so that was ridiculous. So it needed my parents to say, no, this is what you're going to eat. This is what you're going to do. And I feel like, why don't we do that with careers? Like, why do we let a nine? I mean, you know what I mean? So I just feel like, you know, this, this is my mission. This is what I'm passionate about. And I just hope to, you know, change people's idea. Yeah things. Well, we have all seen Bill Gates. It is nice to see, you know, someone like Nisha <laughs> Butler, a sister, thank doing you. the thing. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank well, you. Well, thank you so much for sharing this you with know. us. We so appreciate you. Thank you so much for just having an interest. And I, you know, I appreciate you so much because I do feel that when I was playing basketball, the publicity since I was super young mm -hmm. that reinforces and supports that lifestyle. We want to do this for kids as well, right? Like, you know, I, I try to give our kids trophies and and try to interview them and make them feel special because I I know the feeling of being um, supported at a young age for something. Um, and then that has a 99% failure rate. So I, I thank you guys for, I know it's nerdy. It's like engineering, but it's cool and it's fun. And, uh, we, you know, I feel like, you know, sports is a great thing and it's very vapid, but I think engineers that actually can change the world, you know, like we can help each other. We could, you know, invent things and, and use things for our use as humans. And I, I think that this is something so cool. Um, and I, I'm just really grateful that you guys um, decided to cover it. So thank you guys. Oh, thank you so much. We couldn't agree with you more. It's Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. I am talking now with Jessica Ramos, Vice President of Circus Lena. They are a traveling circus, and they are in Georgia right now. Hi, Jessica. How you doing, Leah? Thank Hi. you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure. So first of all, what is it like to be born into a circus? Your family is of several generations of circus performers. What in the world is that like? <laughs> yeah, so I am a fifth-generation circus performer. I was born raised in the circus industry 
Um, in 84, my, my family was traveling the U.S. Uh, with a well-known company called Carson and Barnes Circus. Mm -hmm. And um, I was born while they were on tour with the circus. Um, my mother had to stay a few days at the hospital while the circus continued their shows. And then we were able to join them, uh, you know, just right out of the hospital, straight to the circus. <laughs> <laughs> what is it... Um... What is a typical day like for you? So every morning, um, I have a I have a seven year old child who is uh, doing um, school. It's online school, so we get up really early in the morning and start live class sessions um, online. I have to make sure she's she's there with uh, with all of her live classes, and I also have a newborn, which is only twenty days old. So oh, wow! My hands are pretty full. <laughs> yes, and you're on the road right now. Yes. And we are on the road. Yes, I, I, I make sure that uh, all the permits are in place, that the the properties are secured. I, I close the contracts with the property owners. Uh, to be able to set up our tent on their parking lots or on their properties. Do you actually perform as well? I no longer perform, not at this time. Uh, you know, just having the baby, yeah. I have to get back in shape to, to get on stage again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you just had the baby 20 days ago, so you get a moment. Yeah. <laughs> you get a moment. It's a little break, right? Yeah, yeah. So when you perform, what do you actually uh, do when you actually, you know, perform? I do a juggling act. Oh. So I juggle uh, several items at the same time. I also juggle my husband, you know, because I, you know, it's, it's a juggling act while you're home, <laughs> juggling kids, juggling the husband. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Now, uh, and tell me about Lena. That's that's it's Circus Lena. What is or who is Lena? So Lena is a combination of our children's names. So we we took the two first letters from our first child mm -hmm. and the two uh, second letters of our second child. So we put them together, and it's uh, Circus Lena. It's Oh, so that's the name of <laughs> it's it. the name of our show. Yeah. So when you say Circus Lena, um, do you think about the children? Is what do you think about? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is uh, our passion to bring fun entertainment um, to the community, especially you know the hardworking families of America. Uh, we want to make them forget about their problems, their daily routines. So we feel that bringing this uh, family entertainment. It, it takes them out of that, that, that daily routine of having to deal with daily traffic to and from work, you know, their, their six to eight hour jobs, you know, and then they come and spend some quality time here with their families. Uh, and you said that um, your husband is involved in this too, and he actually trained in Cuba. Is that, is that true? That is correct. He he his love for the circus came uh, when he was a little boy, um, 10, 11 years old. Um, while he was in Cuba, he would attend the circus and his dream was always to have a, a circus of his own. Um, he joined the circus school in Cuba, the National Circus School, where they teach you to do uh, a, a few routines, uh, different uh, routines in the circus. Mm -hmm. 
uh, for you to be integrated. And um, a lot of circus empresarios go out to, to the festival that they do out in Cuba to see their talents um, and they hire them to tour the world. And that was um, how he joined the circus. He, he was integrated into the circus school and was hired uh, by a, a large circus company and uh, he was able to, to travel with that circus and he came to the U.S. where eventually he met me and uh, <laughs> and we just have this huge love for the circus and I think you know that that was a that was a big hit for both of us. <laughs> yeah you all found each other that's amazing two people yeah. <laughs> who are in the circus yeah. you know that was yes, meant to be. Sick. Completely different stories, but we we were you know mating for for the circus. It was just uh, it was fascinating. You know, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jessica Ramos, you are the vice president of Circus Lena, which is traveling right now in Georgia. Thank you so much for sharing this with with us. We so appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Hopefully uh, you have some time to come on and see our show. We would love to have you here. Thank you all for having us. Monkey Mania in Athens. That is coming up on Georgia and Play. Georgia in play. I'm Leah Fleming. Monkey Mania recently came to Athens. This really did become a major event. Christy York Wooten is GPB's uh, digital news editor. She actually took the ride from Atlanta to Athens to be a part of it. She is with me now. Hi, Christy. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. So, first of all, what <laughs> what is it about the monkeys that uh, was so I mean, it's just so good and, and made people actually come out by the hundreds. Right. So Mickey Dolenz was one of the members of the Monkees. Of course, they found fame in the mid-60s, kind of after Beatlemania. And they had a popular TV show that eventually reached probably nearly all American households because it was a regular TV show in the 60s. And then it came back in syndication several times and actually ended up on MTV in the afternoon, sometimes in the 90s. So they had a lot of exposure and they were known for comedy and music. And they were kind of a made for TV band, although they ended up learning uh, music. Some of them were musicians to start with, of course. Mm -hmm. So what were the monkeys doing in Athens? Well, Mickey Dolenz is the only surviving monkey, and he had just put out an album of R.E.M. cover songs. So there had been some interaction between Mickey Dolenz and members of R.E.M. in the past. And so when he put out this record, he wanted to do it full Athens. So it has a picture on the album sleeve. It's actually an EP, a short play, but a picture mm -hmm. on the album sleeve of Wuxtree Records, which is the famous place where legend has it that Michael Stipe and Peter Buck of R.E.M. met in downtown Athens. It's a record store where Kate Pearson from the B-52s worked. Uh, so there was a big Athens connection to what Mickey Dolenz was doing with this latest album. And I think the crowds came because... So many folks never got to see the monkeys like on a tour. It wasn't it wasn't really the same type of band that way in the 1960s. Of course, they have toured over the years and they had even toured recently before a few of the 
most recent members who had passed away. But a lot of folks had this sort of pent up fandom from the 1960s, and they wanted to get a glimpse of Mickey Dolan's. So set the scene for us. What kind of I mean, did you hear music? What was happening there? And I know the mayor was there as well. The mayor was there. So it it turned out to be a really magical day in Athens. First of all, the weather was spotless. You know, we're in kind of this dry period with sun in Georgia right now. And so I approached the record store. There were maybe 50 or 60 people milling around when I got there. And, you know, it wasn't a situation where there's a bunch of security or the streets were cordoned off. And as we went through the time, about an hour before Mickey was supposed to arrive, he was supposed to arrive in a like a canary yellow classic car, which is similar to the one that's on the album cover. And the man who was driving the car accidentally locked the keys in the trunk. So Mickey had to find alternative transportation to the record store. And in that half hour or so with the snafu with the car, the crowd just grew and grew and grew out into the street. So police came eventually and kind of brought some cones so that people could stand around the corner of the record store. And then on the balcony of the record store at the top on the side of the building, there was a band of local musicians playing monkey songs. And that's when everything kind of started to gel as if the whole city of Athens had come to this one block to sing along with monkey songs. Oh, my goodness. That is so monkeys, you know, the keys in the car. <laughs> that's just that's It was. It was. <laughs> It felt like a, a scene from one of their TV episodes. Right, right. That's what I'm, I'm thinking. Oh, goodness. So Mayor Gertz actually gave uh, a key to the city, right? He gave uh, Mickey a key to the city? He did. So Mayor Gertz is also famously an REM fan and, and apparently a Monkees fan as well. So when he introduced Mickey Dolans to the crowd and handed him the ceremonial key to the city, he told a story about when he was young and how music really impacted him, first with the songs of R.E.M., and also at the same time sneaking over to a friend's house after school, skipping homework so he could watch the monkeys. So he said it was kind of full circle mishmash of these two musical entities for him on that day. And uh, the crowd really responded to that story from the mayor. Mm. And what about for you? Do you remember the monkeys? I do remember the monkeys. They were popular before I was born, but I do remember them in syndication. And of course, as Mickey Dolan said in his acceptance speech, you know, they they always had wonderful songwriters writing for them. So like Jerry Goffin and Carol King and Neil Diamond and others. And and on the day in Athens, uh, the band had a singer, Chris McKay, who was singing Daydream Believer. Oh. And that's when kind of the spark happened and everyone was singing along. And it was just a really great expression of, of what happens in a town and when people come together and the impact of music. It was it was just one of those special moments. And and once you hear a monkey song, you cannot get it out of your head. And that's true. <laughs> I'm already hearing Daydream Believer. I'm already hearing it. (laughs) All right. Well, Christy, thank you so much for sharing with us. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we're going to have a little fun with the dogs. That's ahead on Georgia in Play. And just so you now have that music in your head, here is Daydream Believer by the Monkees.
You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. So the next time you're enjoying a lovely glass of wine or even some whiskey, you can thank a barrel maker for that because barrel makers or master coopers, they are only a few people left in the world who actually do this kind of work, which goes into that lovely glass of wine or whiskey. Lee Arnold is one. Lee is founder of Gainesville Cooperage and Lee, you are with me now. Hello. 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 So this is something that just a few people uh, do anymore. What exactly is a barrel maker or a cooper? A cooper is a uh, person that uh, actually makes casks is what they're called. C-A-S-K-S, casks, because they're generally different sizes. You have, uh, you know, um, a hogshead, which is what is considered the normal 53-gallon barrel side, and then you have uh, pinch-ons and others, other classifications for different uh, barrel sizes and the wine and the bourbon industry, and then you have, uh, of course, as simple as a butter churn. I mean, a, a cooper is a, a master cooper, is somebody well-rounded that can uh, produce buckets, anything that's necessarily as a vessel for uh, transporting liquids uh, mainly, but they've, uh, for centuries, they were used for transporting all types of goods, meats, fish, uh, flour, gunpowder. Uh, just everything through the centuries. Uh, so there, it's a vast array of knowledge of your product and what you're going to do with it. Ah, so how did you become a cooper? Well, I found uh, a fascination for it uh, about 35 years ago in a visit to Colonial Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And I saw the master cooper there. It was uh, Mr. Pettingill was his name. And he was over from the UK. They had hired him and brought him over to facilitate their cooperage program. And um, I just fell in love with the craft. I like everything old anyway, so it uh, just kind of fit right in. Uh, so uh, that, and I just enjoyed it. And then eventually, as uh, fate allowed, time happened. Uh, somebody approached me uh, years later and asked me if I could make a cask or barrels for their uh, distillery. And I said, well, I'd sure like to give it a shot. And we made a few. And and then uh, from that point forward, we ended up investing in equipment to expedite the process. And uh, it's just from there it grew. And now you have this business in Gainesville. Yes, we're located in, uh, uh, in Gainesville, Georgia, uh, in the old Georgia chair factory. They, that, the buildings we're in were built in the 1920s. So it really adds to the uh, feel of doing an old world craft in an old world building. Oh, wow. Yes, you have to set the scene. What does it, it look like in there? Well, the, the, the buildings are all solid brick. There's mm-hmm. no frame structure. They're one-foot thick brick walls. The, uh, the ceilings are all heart pine timbers uh, and uh, decking material. And um, it's just, and there's still remnants of the uh, old system of where they used um, strap bully, pulleys and belts to drive equipment there's some of the the gear still hanging from the ceiling and uh it's it's really it, it gives a really nostalgic feel i mean it, it feels like you step back in time just going in that building and um it's it's just a really neat place to work every day yeah so are there any young people that you're training to do this because i'm thinking you know it, it's such a, a tight-knit community that does this such a small number of you we we have tried to bring in some people uh, under uh, forty, mm-hmm. and we've only had 
I see if I have my son, which is one that's included. He's 21, and this is what he's going to – this is going to be his legacy to take over. He really enjoys it and uh, really has a good time doing it. Um, but we have only one other guy that's uh, around his age. He's 26, and then everybody else is over 40. And uh, I've tried to hire people, but nobody seems to be interested in learning the craft because it is work. I mean, it, it is it is hard work. In the summertime, it's hot. When you're charring barrels, you're standing in front of an open flame. <laughs> so it, it, it's not something somebody really wants to do if, if they can sit around and, uh, you know, uh, venture to be a uh, influencer on social media. <laughs> so this is not for them. <laughs> so, but uh, we would love that. And it would uh, please us to no end to have that ability to do so. Yeah. Well, it is fascinating to hear about. Lee Arnold is founder of Gainesville Cooperage. Thank you so much, Lee, for sharing this with us. Well, thank you, and y'all have a wonderful day. This is a fashionable time of the year for us as humans, and it's even fashionable for our furry loved ones. Last winter, I was in New York City around Christmas time, and I started to really look at what the dogs were wearing in Manhattan. And it wasn't your typical basic sweater from like a PetSmart or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I was seeing dogs that I know were in some expensive clothes. They were in, I saw one dog in a bomber jacket with a, you know, white fur collar and matching booties. And I saw another in a gorgeous sweater with some bling on it. Well, did you know that there is an entire industry of high fashion for dogs? Yeah, there really is. And if you have some discretionary income and you want your dog to look extra fly when he or she goes out for a potty break, then let me introduce you to my new bestie, Ashley Caristia and her chihuahua, Gianni Liberace. Ashley is a Georgia girl after my own heart. This is why she's my new bestie. Her fashion sense is not a game. She is the proprietor of the online store Bark Fifth Avenue and a columnist with uh, this trade magazine, Pet Age Magazine. Here she is during our Zoom meetup recently talking about what's hot for spring 2024 for dogs. Simple classic still, you know, your pearls and your rhinestones and your blings, but I'm also seeing... Um, a trend in lace, believe it or not, and fur, fur everything, just fuzzy, fuzzy fur, um, like we're talking furry collars. Ashley started her couture business in college. And at one point, uh, she says she opened up this brick and mortar store and the housewives of Atlanta heard about it and they came out to shop. And from there, you know, her business just went hot. It just got all kinds of hot. She says that her love of fashion started when she was a kid. Being in fashion um, as a little little girl, uh, my parents kind of threw me into that pageant thing. And then I always loved animals. I would always dress up my pets. Um, <laughs> in fact, I made my mom and dad like buy little tickets to come see, you know, my fashion show for the dogs and the cats and the hamsters and whatever else I had. So it was really neat. So I just kind of took everything that I loved and had a passion for and put it together. And thus Park Fifth Avenue was born. Some facts now in 2020, People actually spent over $5 billion globally on pet fashion. $5 billion. Designers like Gucci, they heard about that, and they got in on chic clothing and accessories for your dog. Right now online, there's a coat for the dog that has a hood and 
that classic brown diamond shaped crisscross pattern that was first introduced by the brand in the 1930s. You know it when you see it. Well, that jacket online right now costs $930. So you can add that to your dog's Christmas list. What is the deal with all of this, you may be asking? I was asking that too. Ashley says that she's got a theory. It's more or less like the human-animal bond connection, right? It's kind of like, you know, especially with millennials and the Z generation, whatever, they're they're not not getting married and they're not, you know, having kids as much Mm -hmm. as back in the day. So our pets are our kids. And I can say that because I have two boys, but they're Chihuahua boys. (laughs) So it's about spoiling the kids. All right, so there is a flip side to this. There are some animal rights advocates out there that say many dogs, they don't like to be dressed at all, and it only stresses them out, which is, you know, detrimental to their well-being. The communication between animals, they say, can also be, you know, disturbed by the clothing because the posture is less easily read. Think, for example, about, you know, a hood, that hood on that jacket that I was telling you about, the $930 one, well, that partially would cover their ears and even their eyes. However, in some cases, clothing is necessary for animals to keep them warm. So I guess you have to take all of that into consideration. But in the meantime, there is no shortage of matching dresses, you know, if you want to do the mommy and me thing with your dog or even some nice cable sweaters that you can match with your dog on your next outing. And I say, if that brings you joy, then do it. And that's our show for today. I would love to hear from you. Just say hello and let me know what you think about the show or what we need to be talking about. You can reach out through email. It's askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen at gpb.org. Chase McGee is senior producer. Special thanks to visiting producers Ashley Mengwasser and Chelsea Phillips-Tafoya. ML Ryan is vice president of news. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you the very best. Talk to you soon.